thanks. Thanks for coming, everybody. Can you hear me without the... Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming out to this. This is the last of like a series of readings that I've been doing uh, for this new collection. Um, I was in, uh, I don't know, I was in Portland and, and Walla Walla and stuff. And um, I don't know, it's really nice to be finally done with it and to have such a nice turnout. Oh, should I? I can also lean a little. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Um, so yeah, thank you again to Skylight and for that great intro and for coming out. Um, I'm just going to read through uh, one complete story, which is uh, in the new book. It's called Backyard, and it's about a bunch of kids living in New Orleans um, uh, and thinking about morality, or not thinking about morality, as the case may be. Um, and then, if there's time, I'll maybe show you some like snippets of what I'm working on now, just so there's some kind of like uh, event exclusive content, um, and you can't, you don't feel ripped off for coming out here. Uh, and then there's like so much food. Uh, I I went to Trader Joe's and I got some freaking box wine, um, and I have friends that brought donuts. Um, so, yeah, immediately after that, we can all just go hog wild, uh, over there. Um, so, yeah, and the way I'll be, comics readings are always super, I don't know, they're, they're like, usually kind of uncomfortable, because uh, you're like, well, do I, do I, like, do the voices? Uh, I mean, you can all read what I'm going to be reading to you. Uh, and I've seen some, like, super intense productions of it where people will, like, act stuff out. Like, they, they get their friends to come act in it and stuff. And um, and when that's done really well, it's, like, amazing. And 90% of the time, it just makes you want to die. Um, so I'm basically going to do this uh, like it's a... a pitch. Uh, I work on this cartoon show and we pitch it uh, in meetings so we kind of talk through what's going on and kind of narrate it um, and kind of summarize and yeah, I'm going to try that. Uh, So I started with this is an About the Author comic. Uh, That's me and I have a hammer and I'm going, we make a great team. Uh, I feel like our goals are very aligned. And I say, have you noticed how we never fight? And now look at this beautiful thing we've built together. And we've got this cute little house. And I say, well, and you go. And put the hammer in a box. And then I draw comics and enjoy the fruits of our labors. That's a pretty dark and obscured breakup comic. Uh, So the next piece I'm going to read is the actual story. This is Backyard. Uh, So there's a a girl on her hands and knees in the backyard. And that's the title right there, Backyard. So there's this uh, this person looking through the blinds. This is sort of the main character, uh, Anne. 
uh, and she's saying, my parents are coming this week. And uh, her friend next to her in the kitchen is saying, oh, God, are they going to be huge tourists? And she's like, yeah. Uh, they're staying in the quarter, but they're probably going to want to see the house. Um, and they're in this super sort of uh, punky kitchen. It's like a bike in the kitchen and stuff. And she says, I'll try not to be fucking anybody when they show up. Uh, do you think we should do something about Molly? And her friend says, yeah, we should probably do something about it because, you know, they'd be weird. And then later they're biking uh, past some chickens in the road. And she's like, that fuck, he hasn't even been to the last two potlucks. Uh, And Anne says, no, I know he sucks. I can't believe he would talk shit about me. I'm a way better radical. (laughs) It's like a real thing someone said. I lived in New Orleans for a little bit. That's like the most sort of like eye-rolling moment in this story, but it's the most true, you guys. <laughs> uh, and they're carrying their bikes up into the house. And she says, did you get Molly's food? And then they're in the backyard and they're feeding Molly. And um, Leah says, it's just like, why would you be such a dick? And then there's this tender post-coital moment with some dude. And she's saying three weeks, I think. Let's see. Uh, she stopped wearing shoes in June, so a month or so ago, and she stopped talking a little after that, and then the weekend after the big rally, she started walking like how she does. Uh, and we came home one day, and she'd messed up the house, so now she lives in the garden. Uh, so three weeks, yeah, she just wasn't happy living inside. And then we have a flashback to them, uh, coming home and discovering Molly, uh, not being happy living inside. Uh, And she says, we're all really happy for her. She's just figuring out some stuff about herself. (laughs) And then later, this is the same uh, boy, and they're in City Park in Mid-City, and she's saying, yeah, I guess I feel the same way about you, yeah. And he's laughing and all bashful. And she's like, it's been cool getting to fool around with you and stuff. And then her phone rings and she checks it and she reads it out loud. And she's like, important house meeting. So then uh, we cut to the important house meeting and she's having none of it. Uh, And someone's saying, okay, if we feel okay about the compost thing, I'd like to move to the next agenda point. Uh, So the coop's going to cost us an extra $75 because of the roof. She says, uh... Martin and Firefly, I know you're planning on moving out soon, but if you'd like eggs, you should probably contribute at least something. And Martin and Firefly are like, okay. There's just bikes everywhere, I'm realizing, in this house. It's just every background. Um, uh, There's a fixie. Uh, And then maybe me, Alma, and Anne can split the rest equally. And some housemate whose name you don't even know says, I don't think that's fair. I don't have the same access to cash right now that you do. And then Molly starts barking. Uh, I hope you can see this way in the back. Uh, Molly is outside the window, and she's peering in and barking. And they're all like, what? And there's like a moment of acknowledgement, and she keeps barking. And then they go back to the meeting, and she's like, Oh, I hear that, and I want to support you, but we also kind of need this money. Uh, honestly, we're all struggling a little bit. And uh, this unnamed 
third housemate is like, sorry, but that's bullshit. And they start fighting about stuff. And Molly is still barking outside the window. Uh, and they're saying, I feel like you were one of the ones who pushed for a coop at the beginning. If you're going to pull out, you could have warned us. And then another line that I, that is real. Uh, she says, I'm not pulling out on the coop. I was fired by a fucking unjust system. <laughs> that's a, man, that's a trump card at a house meeting. Uh, if you've ever been in a, in a house with a bunch of radicals, that's, um, it's a good political move. Uh, and almost says, okay, calm down. Uh, this is a conversation that two of you need to be having in private, not here. And then somebody finally says, Jesus, does Molly need something? She's been barking this whole time. And then they're, uh, they're biking along at the Bayou St. John. And this uh, unnamed boyf is like, there was no reason, nothing happened before. And uh, Anne says, no, she just started one day. It's really not a big deal. Uh, are you coming in? And he says, I think when you look at her, you're seeing something I'm not. And then uh, her parents show up. These parents that uh, were foreshadowed in that first scene, you'll remember. Um, and they've got cameras and like little beanie sun hats on. And uh, she's showing them around. And she's like, and this is the garden. We've got bok choy, herbs. I think Alma's going to try growing yams. And that's the coop. And her mom is like, have you named your chickens? And then... Uh, Meanwhile, uh, they've taken Molly out of the house onto a field trip where uh, Leah is having sex uh, with her boyfriend uh, out in the wilderness somewhere, I guess, outside of New Orleans. And Molly's watching them through the window. <coughs> uh, and then we have a scene with Molly looking at this little butterfly, all poignanty. And uh, Anne comes up to her and she's like, Molly, I'm going to the store. And Molly chases the butterfly away. And she says, just if you need anything. And then she laughs. And then she's coming back from the store and talking on the phone. And uh, there's like one of these crazy Louisiana rainstorms going on. Just like uh, like instant flooding. You think like the city's like going to have another huge apocalypse. And then like suddenly... It stops and it's over and uh, everything's fine. The cars are just like halfway into water. That happens a lot there. Um, so she hangs up and as she's approaching the house and she looks down this alley and she sees this dead chicken uh, down uh, in the ground. And she walks over to it and continues down this alley uh, into the backyard and... Uh, it's a little hard to tell in this screen size, but it's just full of dead chickens, the whole yard. And she kneels down and looks behind her, and Molly is right there looking peeved. And then there's this little interlude. In the original version of the comic, th this was the end. It ended with that little scene. Um, so what follows, I, I did another half of it that's in the new collection. Um, and I guess I'm going to take questions after this, and, and maybe I'll talk a little bit about my motivations for doing that, or somebody can ask that, or <laughs> don't, you know, it's not meant to be leading. 
Uh, okay, so there's this there's this interlude, uh, and then these same characters are uh, are hunched over in the living room, and she's putting on this bandage on her arm, and uh, her friend Leah is like, "Shit, we just named them." And then uh, later, they're walking into uh, Fairgrinds, a nice janky little coffee place in Mid City. Uh, and she's saying, I, you know how hard I worked on that piece. I don't know, that blog is so important, but she needs to treat her writers better. Um, but otherwise, this has actually been a great month for me. And her friend is like, that's good. Uh, and then she says, hey, you see them starting some sort of uh, heavy conversation. Then later she's fighting with her boyfriend. She's like, we are working on it. There's a meeting tomorrow. And her boyfriend says, yeah, I mean, you know her better than I do. Uh, Have you thought about medical help? And she says, Molly hates doctors. She's angrily chopping vegetables. And he says, I assume that none of your housemates like doctors either? And she's like, what, man? And he says, I'm just asking a question, and if I overstepped a boundary, I apologize. And he's got this real cocky body language going on. He's just like, he's so gross. (laughs) So then there's another house meeting, uh, and they're having coffee and and pouring it uh, over Molly. And she says, okay, so everyone saw my email. Um, they're like, yeah, I didn't totally get what you were proposing, though. She says, well, I'm not really proposing anything right now. I just feel like this situation with the backyard is unsustainable. Uh, And hopefully I'm not alone there. And they're like, no, I I mean, I think we're all freaked out about the chickens, uh, but are you saying Molly should move back into her old room? And Leah says, "Uh, yeah, that gets tricky because we already promised the room to Bryn in September. And uh, Anna says, I didn't know that was for sure. And somebody, I I forget all these people's names, uh, is like, I mean, at this point, we need the rent with Martin and Firefly gone, and if we're getting new chicks. And Leah says, it would be nice if we could hear from Molly. And Molly doesn't say anything. And then later, uh, this is the same couple. Uh, They're hanging out on the Bayou St. John again. Uh, with some wine and some sort of boxed dinner. And she's like, it went well. We made some plans. And he's like, that's good. Uh, We might take shifts sleeping in the backyard to keep her company. And he says, oh, yeah? And where are you sleeping tonight? And he puts his wine down. And she's like, in your butt. And then they make out. (laughs) And as they make out, you can see she has uh, human bite marks on her arm. No one beat Riven without a strategy guide. <laughs> and then she comes in on the swing and nails the landing. She says, some JRPGs, you needed the guide to even play. Uh, that's, a, that's a crucial scene. Uh, so <clears throat> this is Martin and Firefly or whoever back at the house. And um, he hears a, you see him hear a noise. And then they get a text as they're crossing the bridge. And uh, they say, there's cops in the house. And then there are some cops uh, standing outside the door. And they're like, is that a bruise on your cheek? Where'd you get that? 
and Martin is saying, oh, almost talking to them, I'm going to go uh, see what's up. And they're like, oh, shit, be careful. Um, so almost talking with the cops and saying there's no bruise, and they're trying to get inside. Uh, Martin comes out, and he's like, hi, can we help you with something? And the cops are real scary. They're like, is this your boyfriend? Uh, and they say no. And they keep trying to get inside. And Martin's like, we can't let you in without a warrant. And they say, would you rather be dragged out here? And then Alma steps in again and says, we can't let you in if you're not being arrested and you don't have a warrant. And then some some period of time later, they're biking back up to the house. And they're like, I don't see a car. These are the two uh, housemates who were out at the time. And Leah walks in. She's like, are you coming in? And uh, Anne says, I want to check something. And then it splits up, and she walks into the backyard, and Leah goes in to talk to her housemates, who are still freaked out. Um, And she says, oh, my God, did they leave? And they say, they're gone now, but they went in the backyard. And Leah's like, they went in the backyard. And then we cut to the backyard uh, where Anne is looking around for Molly, doesn't see her. And she looks back at the house and looks underneath it and uh, crawls inside and, and there's Molly way at the back of this foundation. This is this, the way these shotgun houses are built in, in New Orleans. They're these super, super long things up on stilts for the floods. And she says, are you okay? And Molly doesn't say anything. And she starts crawling towards her saying, it's okay, they're gone. Molly keeps backing into this corner. And then she starts barking. And um, Anne suddenly is like, oh, you're so scared. Um, You shouldn't be out here. And she's like, we fucked up. I'm sorry, Molly. Then there's a there's a dinner scene, and they're talking about who could have uh, who could have called the cops. They're like, was it the Turners? Maybe. And they're like, no, they fight all day. They wouldn't care. Or the old folks, or something. They're like, I think maybe the cops were just using that as an excuse to get inside. Um, they say, well, either way, props to Martin for flushing everyone's weed. And Martin's like, yeah, I mean, I don't smoke. I'm not taking the rap for you degenerates. And uh, Anne thinks of something, and she's texting on her phone. <coughs> and Leah comes up, and she's like, okay, guys, all set. It's supper time. And she's leading in this other character. Who's this? And they sit her down. And they're like, what do you want, hun? We've got yams, skewers, bok choy, and all this stuff that they've been growing in the garden. And someone says, give her a skewer. There you go. Your bangs came out so good. And uh, she's texting something furiously with her boyfriend, which you can read if you uh, buy the book. (laughs) And someone says, you want that fork? Uh, Let me know if you want help. And Molly's looking down at the fork, and she looks up at her housemates, and there's a very composed little vignette um, of that moment. And that's the end of the story. Uh,
see. Do you know what what time what time do we have? Anybody with a watch? It's eight. Okay. Um, I feel like that's that's probably enough. I could I can maybe take some questions now. Uh, yeah, either about that or any other stuff. And then um, after questions, uh, I guess I'll sign some books for folks. Um, yeah, I can. Hey, what, what prompted you to write the second part? <laughs> oh, wow, that's a good question. <laughs> um, so the the first part was like, the, the, I had, some people came in late. The first part of this story is just this uh, super bleak condemnation of like these kids living in these radical communities, sort of on the fringes, and um, and it, there was just something about it that felt really like cynical and and kind of one-sided because that was one of the only like stories I'd done about these young like uh anarchist communities or whatever um and you know I was like happy with it but it was like a little one note um and also something that uh my friend Olivia pointed out to me the the problem with the first half of that story is by the end of it the only person who seems to think that anything is going wrong with this uh this girl who's like living out in the in the backyard and seems to really not be doing well like the only person to recognize that something's wrong is the straight white dude from outside the community uh and i was like oof yeah that's no good um that's not how i want to portray that um because clearly that was me you know um I like had dated this person in New Orleans and gone and lived with her in the summers, um, and and had a nice time. It was great, but also seen some. I saw some shit. <laughs> um, so the second half of the story, hopefully, um, sets up that dynamic as a little more complicated. Um, I wanted to show that this this. Uh, community does actually make an attempt at helping Molly like you know you can say whether or not that's a sincere one or a uh, an effective one and then I also wanted to show that the boyfriend the boyfriend calls the cops that's the subtext that you can't read in that text message um, I, I wanted to show that this sort of other solution um, that's maybe more uh, conventional or or doesn't look to this like small radical community as a resource is also really violent. Um, so maybe in a way I made it like more nihilistic because I was like, yeah, there's no right way to deal with this. Um, but that was the idea in the second half. It's just trying to complicate the conversation I was having a little bit. Uh, it took me uh, not very long with the strategy guide. Uh, yeah, I was like fourteen. Also, you know, I'm sure if I attacked Riven with like a, you know, my razor sharp adult mind. Yeah, yeah. Like when it was on the app, I beat Mist in like an hour. Oh, 
Wow, hey. It's okay. Um, yeah, um, it's obvious. I mean, like, there's a lot of photo referencing there, right? Like, obviously, like, a lot of that stuff is, like, places that you've been, like, specifically in New Orleans. Like, I mean, did you, did you know while you were in that area, like, that this is a thing that I'm mining a story for, or was it something that you kind of went back on maybe a couple years later? It was definitely, I mean, yeah, I feel like I have to have a couple years behind me before I can set a story in a place or do a story about a person because that's about when, you know, all the little stories you tell yourself about that place or person get smoothed down into this, like, totally fictitious narrative that's like, well, yeah, that's what I learned from that relationship, you know? And you can say that in, like, one sentence, and then you can write the book about it. Um, But... Uh, yeah, I did use a lot of photo reference um, and a lot of also just uh, like tr- life reference. Like I, I kept a sketchbook while I was in New Orleans and I was going through a lot of that um, when I was doing the story set there. Oh, cool, great. Yeah, so, it's really natural. Oh, thanks. It's, there's these kind of double layers of, of fiction there, I guess, um, and romanticization. <laughs> um, yeah. What role do you think the setting plays in the story? Well, it's kind of it's kind of thorny, honestly. Um, this like these are very much set in New Orleans in these uh, these communities of, of mostly outsiders. Um, the the other story in this collection is also set in New Orleans, um, <clears throat> and these were were very much like post-Katrina communities of uh, a lot of white people and a lot of people from the north um, coming from out of town to rebuild or to help out um, or to, you know, uh, start that, like, gentrification wave again. Um, So I, I guess both of the stories are about rebuilding something or about rebuilding some sort of community or rebuilding some sort of family but I also don't think that I really have uh, access to like that larger narrative of of New Orleans you know like that's not what I was doing down there I was just dating somebody and um, and so I, I well I think that maybe that's in the background of these stories is that New Orleans is this kind of, uh, like, city in progress in a lot of ways, you know? And and uh, people move down there a lot of times without, uh, and they, ed- without a plan or, um, or trying to figure something new out about their lives. Um, and I think the chaos of that environment helped a little bit. Um, but, yeah. Does that answer your question? No, oh, good. Um, I can also show you what I'm working on next. It's a little less of a downer. Um, I'll scroll here. You know what? I'll scroll to it really quickly. Through this other downer story, it's like a big depression metaphor, blah, blah, blah. It's families and stuff. Yeah, there's a big hole. The, the hole means depression. There. <laughs> I saved you a read. 
And so what I'm working on now uh, is this this comic about these two video game developers. Um, uh, and it, it all takes place in like... Um, this isn't supposed to be that pixelated. It's supposed to be a little pixelated. <laughs> um, but it's okay. It, it retains the mystery. Um, so it, it, the whole story takes place in this like hypothetical game that they're creating um, and talking out together. So as they change elements in the game, they're like, oh, it could maybe it could be in 3D, maybe it could work in 3D, or maybe it could have this dynamic. The world kind of builds up around them, and the graphics get more and more detailed, which, again, something about the compression on this is... Uh, sort of obfuscating, but uh, trust me, it gets really pretty. Um, and then in the midst of this uh, this game that they've created, their relationship starts to fall apart. And the mechanic of the game, which is about defending your boyfriend from these giant uh, monsters that are attacking this kind of castle that is also Los Angeles... Um, it's like a big medieval castle, but there's like Chevy's signs everywhere and, and freeways and stuff. Um, and the, the, logic, the internal logic of this game world starts to kind of implode along with the relationship. And the main character becomes one of the monsters, and, and it's a metaphor for depression. <laughs> it's not, actually. It's a metaphor for other stuff. But, um, yeah. Anyway, so that's what I'm that's what I'm working on now. Uh, that's the next big project, uh, and I don't have a title for it yet. Um, all right. Yeah. Uh, your art style varies from project to project. Does that come organically, or is that a choice? And like working in animation alters that anyway? Um. I. Yeah, I don't know. I think there's just kind of a restlessness to that and also a, a fear of confronting my own limitations. Uh, if I stay with one medium long enough, I'll have to actually learn how to draw, you know? Um, and I, uh, I think keeping it fresh uh, and, and changing mediums a lot is both a way to, I don't know, like figure out new ideas for stories that I want to tell um, and it's a way of avoiding the work of uh, <laughs> making a, a I don't know a more like technical comic but with this colored pencil one um, I I got really into this like one palette that Prismacolor has so one of the this is so simplistic but but uh, but basically I'm, I'm trying to do the entire story in uh, with no green anywhere in it, um, and uh, and this one character is sort of represented by like warmer colors, and the other is cooler colors, and then maybe I haven't decided yet if I want uh, the green to come in at maybe the end of this relationship as this new experience that you don't even realize you haven't been seeing for the last seventy pages, um, or not. But I don't know. That's like such sort of like super basic uh, storytelling with color stuff, but it's a new medium for me. So that's one way that the the media uh, affects the story I'm trying to tell with it. Uh, 
Hi. Um, I think it's really interesting that you're showing a piece that's so raw that you're still working on. And it made me think of how the last story you read, you talked about uh, going back in and making a second half to the story after you publish it. And I wonder um, if that's part of how you work, if when you publish and distribute a story, you not necessarily feel like it's over, but it just needs something else to continue creating it? Or? Yeah. No, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I feel like both both these stories are in some way really personal for me. Um, and so it felt important to me um, with this with the first one to revise it because I have different thoughts about the experience that it was uh, uh, depicting. Um, and I, I also I kind of have this uh, I think a lot of cartoonists have a lot of insecurity about literature and feeling like we're always going to be a step behind uh, uh, prose's achievements. Um, and I feel like one of the ways to narrow that gap, um, you know, not that comics is a lower medium or whatever, but, uh, but comics just don't get revised enough, you know? Most most fiction, uh, traditional fiction, goes through so many iterations of revisions and and editing, and you show it to people, and get feedback and attack it again. And comics, you can't do that as much um, because it's so drawn. But um, but I I do think that's uh, that's something I'd like to I'm trying to incorporate into my practice or whatever. Uh, is revision. Um, oh yeah, maybe one more. Does it sort of inhibit the the storytelling if I feel like I have a message to to impart? Um, yeah, definitely to some degree. Um, uh, and and honestly, I think one of the I think one of the weaknesses of of that story that I just read is that um, none of the none of the characters feel super real. To me, they're they're more like um, I don't know. I was trying, but it's it's an earlier story, and it, it feels kind of like my like my Lars Van Trier comic or something. You know how like Lars Van Trier has never like written a character. He's just like ah, I'm just gonna move these ideas around on the screen. Fuck you, I win. <laughs> you know, um, uh, and he's totally seems in service of, of a message. Um, I guess your your question was kind of more about morality. Um, I don't know, that's a heavy thing. I kind of, I, 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 
I tend to think now that like while it is important to uh, to to be saying the right stuff with your stories, you know, like um, I I think on some level you have to just tell what feels true to you um, and be simultaneously examining uh, if how you view the world is a moral way to view the world because sometimes it's not. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, well, thanks again so much for coming, you guys. And please do just, like, do murder on those snacks because they're really good. Um, and I can sign some books for folks. Uh, I have the new guy and some old stuff. Um, yeah, thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.